It's a wonderful image. The entire picture plane, almost, is filled with cherry blossoms. And the way she patterns the pinks and whites brings the scene to life with a light breeze we can almost feel. The trees are predominant, but there is real depth to the picture as we see indigo evidence of water with pleasure boats or boats for fisher folk. And one thing we may sense as we celebrate this peak pinkness and natural beauty that the artist has captured for us a moment in time as a gift, a fundamental feeling of fragility in the flowers, but stability too in the trunks and roots of the trees. The artist is Miharu Lane, who lives and works here in the Pocono Mountains, and she is rooted in a long tradition of artists who capture the beauty of cherry trees, mountains, water, and the natural world. She was born in Japan. When she speaks of her approach to her work, she uses the word essence, hoping to reflect in some way the essence of what is before her. As it happens, poet Gail Mazur has written a poem titled Mount Fuji with these verses about the celebrated Japanese artist printmaker we know as Hokusai. A draftsman's draftsman, Hokusai at 70 thought he'd begun to grasp the structures of birds and beasts, insects and fish, of the way plants grow, hoped that by 90 he'd have penetrated to their essential nature. And more, by 100, I will have reached the stage where every dot, every mark I make, will be alive. Words of Gail Mazur from her poem Mount Fuji in the Hudson Review. There's something of that sense in Miharu Lane's work. She has a keen sense of structure and form, and she creates a dynamism that reveals something profound about her view of the natural world. She too might hope that every mark she makes will be alive. Miharu Lane is a professor emerita of art and a 1991 graduate of East Stroudsburg University. She is someone who's received numerous grants and scholarships during her tenure at ESU, including a faculty development and research grant to develop the exhibit Seascapes, Ocean, Bays, and Marshes. She has exhibited her paintings at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and other places all around the East. She has had shows at the Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge and the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area. We had a chance to speak by phone with Miharu Lane in connection with a current exhibition of her work at the Antoine Duteau Museum and Gallery in Delaware Water Gap, and we began our conversation at the beginning. I started when I was four years old, and I'm 73 now, so I've been doing that for 69 years. <laughs> you were born in Japan, right? Yes, and uh, I came here when I was 10. And so I have always been involved in art. You know, everybody's wondering what they'll be when they grow up. I had no question I was going to be an artist. <laughs> Were you attracted to images in Japan? Well, as a kid, I was not aware, except I see other children uh, making beautiful colored-in tulips and 
things like that, but it wasn't until later that I discover fine art. When was that aha experience? Well, 1975, the first Women's Year celebration in New York. There were people like, let's see, George O'Keefe, Louise Nevelson, uh, Louise Bourgeois, jurors filled with very famous women artists. And 3,000 people responded. They sent slides, which was to be traveled all through the tri-state area. And I was one of the 50 people that was chosen. And so at this point, I thought, oh, maybe I'll become a fine artist. (laughs) So that's how I started. I was 27 at the time, but I was doing lots of other artwork before, but they were all commercial types of things. And what were the images that you presented to them? Uh, It was a bald, a nude woman emerging from a fish's mouth and diving into the sea. So, very weird image. Was it kind of a mythological thing? I don't remember. At that point, I was thinking of more imaginary images. You know, uh, Francisco Goyas, the ogres floating in space. Well, I would change that into Japanese women floating in space. And so that was like delving into, you know, things that won't sell necessarily, but more imaginative things. And where did you take it from there then? Well, uh, then I started to make limited edition lithographs. I started with a Book of the Month Club, Fine Arts 260. I went uh, with my college portfolio, and they said, do you know how to make lithographs? And I said, sure. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) I knew how to make black and white on stone, you know, but these were like uh, multi-plate, like 12 plates per print. So I went from them to Doubleday and Company, Original Print Collectors Group, New York Graphic Society, and Art Spectrum. So I, I made I think altogether 28 editions of prints. And how did you come then to get skilled? I would think black and white wouldn't necessarily be easy. (laughs) Yeah, black and white was very hard because I ended up teaching printmaking at East Stroudsburg University when I first started. And so I was trying to teach the students, and that was very hard. (laughs) But I worked with Mylar to do color separation And then the mylar was turned into metal plates, which was then placed onto Heidelberg Mechanical Press. And I had a pressman there helping with the registration and mixing of colors and things like that. While you were in New York, were you going to museums and galleries and looking and absorbing what was going on around you? Yes, yes. (laughs) That's what I miss about now that I can't go to the museums, you know. That's what I've missed in the last year and a half. And so you were evolving in terms of your skills and the way you were working in terms of the technical aspects of your art, but also you were developing your imagery. As you told us, you had this image of the fish and the water and the woman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then it it became a Japanese women series and... Basically, one of the first books that I read was uh, Tales of Genji by Lady Murasaki Shibuki, who wrote it 
first novel ever written in the world in the 11th century. And what was nice about that book is that the, the book would describe the colors and the kimonos and the motifs, and, and I could picture it as it, as it was told. And so I used that a lot. And then, of course, I was interested in you know all the other centuries of Japanese art. And also, I, of course, being Japanese, I read anything that had to do with Japan and and any works that were translated from Japanese to English, I read. And in the course of your explorations and your painting and creating these images, we have a sense that these are very much Japanese women, but the whole feel is yours, it seems. It's like you have had an interaction with it, but you're not copying. Right. Let me tell you about that. I went through a period where uh, we were renovating brownstones in Brooklyn. So my life was, you know, renovating with two little children following behind my son and my daughter. So it was a very hectic life. Um, I mean, you call the police and they don't come. It was that kind of neighborhood. So my life was like that. And my art was very peaceful because I'm trying, in my mind, I'm trying to get away from all that chaos. So it, it was like compensating for looking for peace when there wasn't any. <laughs> and we know there are certain schools of philosophy from Asia that are, in fact, helping us to get centered and so on. Was something of the way of viewing the world in Japan part of what you were working with as well as the imagery? Uh, actually, I'm looking for a page now that I wrote. The Zen emphasizes upon discipline and restraint, and its distrust of sensuous appeal led him to banish color from paintings and to express himself purely in incline and wash, a technique called a sumiboku-ga, water ink painting. Any painting that by its theme and treatment helped to cleanse the mind and lead to awareness of eternal things could be said to embody Zen ideals. So when Zen came from China to Japan, it was the most influential Buddhism to art. So they, they're still pretty much influenced by this Zen Buddhism. We understand that you're preparing a project that would take you to Japan to follow in the footsteps of an earlier Japanese artist. Would you tell us about it? Sure, sure. It's through Fulbright U.S. Scholar Program. And, you know, it's highly competitive. I'm competing against the rest of the world, so I don't know if I'll get it. But it's called 36 Views of Kyushu. Hokusai, who back in 1860s, I think, he was like my age, and he started on foot to walk in all the different prefectures where you could see Mount Fuji. And, you know, the the print of the big wave. Well, if you look very closely, there's Mount Fuji in the background. <laughs> People don't notice that. So every print that he, well, he sketched, and he had very expert craftsmen make the prints. So since I'm from Kyushu, 
I want to go to Kyushu and land in Fukuoka and travel. They have bullet train there now. So I want to circumvent Kyushu and, you know, stay in like a week or two here, a week or two there, and come up with 36 paintings, which I'm not sure if I could do it in six weeks if I have to spend my own money. But if I get money from Fulbright, I could spend three months there. And so you would be in conversation with Hokusai and bringing your take on that way of approaching Mount Fuji. Yeah, and I, and I will be pretty much be influenced by him and, and his art because well, that's what happened in 19th century. All these woodblock prints were arrived in Europe as wrappings to ceramics and lacquerware, and artists like uh, Degas, Monet, Whistler, Vincent Van Gogh started to collect them, and and there was a term Japanism. <laughs> It became a very popular art influence, and everybody was doing it. They were collecting Japanese this, Japanese that, and so I'll probably be doing the similar thing. I, I like the different compositions that Hoxai uses, and you know the wind is blowing, and and also showing the scenes of 1860s, like wherever there's a river and there's no bridge. All these guys with just a loincloth will come, and they will carry the people across across the river. But now they have bridges in most of these places. So you'll render the bridges? Well, I, I would definitely see different things. And when you live in a place, you don't see much because you're just, you're just living. So I'm, I'm sure I'll see a lot. I mean, Kyushu has... Well, first I'm going to go to Fukuoka, then head west to Nagasaki... Accessible, which has lots of, uh, let's see, what was the influence of Portuguese, Dutch, and that's where the Westerners stayed. And so there's a lot of, you know, European influence there. And then as you head south, the southernmost city is Kagoshima. Uh, I'm sure you've seen people lying on the beach in the black sand and with like a little umbrella over their head. And uh, hot springs bubble up through the sand. So I want to experience that, too. And then when you go north, it's Beppu. Did you see Martin Scorsese's Silence? It's a movie about Japanese Christianity in Beppu, northern Kyushu. That's where the hot springs are. And they were being tortured by the hot water. And I mean, it, it's not a fun movie to watch, <laughs> but uh, it really describes what happened to Christianity in Japan. And then there was Shimbara Rebellion. The Japanese Christians rebelled. So it was at that point that Ieyasu, the shogun, closed the ports to foreign influence. And so that, that led to 200 years of isolation in Japan which was great for the arts. They prospered, and there was no more fighting. But then Matthew Perry comes along, American, <laughs> and uh, opens Japan, and you know, industrialization of Japan began at that point. Do you still have family in Japan? I do not. I mean, there's a lot of questions. You know, my, my mother and my father were probably the very first people that was granted divorce before, a man could divorce a woman, but my mother divorced my father. 
So then I thought one day, you know, I'll, I'll see if he's still around. Turned out he died when he was 36. But his family, his side is where all the arts were. My grandfather on my father's side was an artist to a daimyo, which is like a, a governor. And then my great aunt, also on my father's side, raised a family. She had three boys. They were all grown. And in her mid-40s, she dropped everything and went to Kyushu and opened up the Anagama Kiln, you know, the one that goes up the hill. They have one in uh, Peters Valley. In fact, there's going to be a workshop this coming Friday. My friend uh, Joni Oya Benintende is loading ceramics along with ceramics from Tri-State. They're all coming for this firing. But anyway, she opened up the kiln, and everybody said, Oh, you're too old to be taking up a new profession like that, but she didn't listen, and she attained the second rank of a ceramist. And my mom, when she went to Japan, brought back an obituary about my aunt, and evidently when uh, she became old, she went back to Korea, where the ceramist originally came from, and taught young girls how to make pots, you know, to thank the the origins of her ceramic work. No matter where you are, you are drawn to the world of nature, aren't you? Yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> you say you work outside on plein air, right? Right. I have a place in uh, Chincoteague, Virginia, you know, Misty of Chincoteague, the story. I have a little house there, and so uh, I do most of my work there in the surrounding area. And you talk about trying to get to the essence. What does that mean to you? I think the essence is how you look at things, that uh, it's your point of view of whatever that's in front of you that's plain air. I mean, I don't have anything deep. <laughs> it's just I do like nature a lot, and I'm sitting here in my bedroom now overlooking the woods, and I have a stream running through so that's part of my life. And when you go to Japan, you'll be rendering the natural world there, too, as part of what you're yes. exploring. Yes. I want to go for uh, March, April, and May, because that's when the cherry blossoms start to bloom. Spring is beautiful everywhere, but uh, that would be the best time to go. Well, let me just ask you what we can see when we come to the Duto Museum. Okay. There's two rooms, and the first room is filled with landscapes and landscapes and scenes of gardens and flowers. And I'm right in the middle of another series called Great Trees. I had a show at Kettle Creek Environmental Center about a year and a half ago. So there's a couple of them, but I'm saving, I'm working on it now, so I don't want to show it because next show it'll be all trees. And so then you go to the next room, I have one watercolor of two courtesans, but it's basically prints and oil paints in that room. And what's funny about this thing is that you know I haven't even didn't even think about the Japanese series, and Will said, "Oh, why don't you put some of it in?" And now I'm getting a lot of interest in my Japanese series. So it's like a rebirth, you know, because something that's old. I stopped doing it in 1989, and here it is about 41 years ago, and it's starting again.
Miharu Lane, Professor Emerita of Art and graduate of East Stroudsburg University, speaking with us in connection with the current exhibition of her work at the Antoine Duteau Museum and Gallery in Delaware Water Gap. That is a show that is running right now and will continue to July 18th. There is an opening reception, though, tomorrow evening from 7 to 9, and the public is invited to attend. That's 24 Main Street, Route 611 in Delaware Water Gap. It's the Antoine Duteau Museum and Gallery, and the gallery hours generally Saturdays and Sundays from 1 to 5 p.m. For more information on the web, dutomuseum.com, dutomuseum.com, D-U-T-O-T, museum.com. That's Miharu Lane, and her name is spelled M-I-H-A-R-U, Lane, L-A-N-E, and her work is on exhibit to July 18th at the Duteau Museum and Gallery, Delaware Water Gap, Saturdays and Sundays from 1 to 5, with an opening reception tomorrow evening, July 9th, from 7 to 9 p.m. For more information, on the web, dutomuseum.com. Thank you.